podcast. This is our Q&A where we look at questions through the lens of Scripture. Our desire is to know what God's Word says so we can know what to believe. Rather than approaching the Word of God to reinforce what I might already believe, we want to approach the Word of God to find out what to believe, rightly dividing the Word of God. I love 2 Corinthians 3, excuse me, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All scripture is given by the inspiration of God is profitable for reproof, for correction, for doctrine, that the man of God would be complete, thoroughly equipped, lacking in nothing, thoroughly equipped for every good work. And I think it's really important for us to have that heart and desire so that the Bible is our authority. Otherwise, you can end up believing all kinds of things, and you can find justifications by taking passages out of context or twisting them or looking at difficult passages and trying to come up with something that's there. All right, so I appreciate you guys. Glad to have you here with us. We did not have a Q&A on Wednesday. Uh, in, uh, today, we're going to be looking at your questions, and we want to start with a question that was given to us last week. It's good to see you guys here um, logging on. So we had a question that was asked at near the end of our study about the biblical canon of Scripture. How did we get our canon? And how come the Catholic Bible, the Jerusalem Bible, has more books added to it? And I don't know if you know this or not, but the Eastern Orthodox Bible has even more books that are added to it. So we want to talk about how we got our canon and can we be confident about it. Let's start. Well, first of all, remember that there are 66 books in the Bible. And these are, uh, these 66 books are a library, right? That are in one book. It used to be before they were put into codex form, which is a word that's used for book form in the ancient world. Then you had to have a scroll of Isaiah and a scroll of Jeremiah. And then in the New Testament, you had to write a scroll of Paul, or one of Paul's letters until they were finally put into the Bible. And we have 39 Old Testament books and 27 New Testament books. Why do we have the Old Testament books? Because during the time of Jesus, there had been an accepted number of books in the biblical text for that the Jews accepted. And in the New Testament, most of these are quoted. And those are the ones, and because the first queer Christians were Jewish, remember that on the day of Pentecost when the church was birthed, there were 3,000 Jewish uh, individuals that became Christian. And, and so it would make sense that they would accept what they had already had as canon. Their canon had these 39 books in it. They were just lined up differently. So if you look at a at, a, at the Jewish Torah, then you're going to see that they're lined up differently, but they're the same exact books. We agree with them because Christianity came out of Judaism. And when it came out of Judaism, we saw Scripture the same way that they saw Scripture. And we believe that they did a good job of compiling the things that they had heard from God. The amazing thing about the Jewish Scriptures as well is it doesn't paint the Jewish leaders in the best light. And if you're going to make up a history, you would paint your heroes a lot better. But the Old Testament doesn't do that. So that's why we have the Old Testament books by which we have. Now, the Catholic Church adds apocryphal books to that. I think it's seven. The Eastern, Eastern, Orthodox, Eastern Orthodox Church adds a few more. They were not added to the Bible until the fifth, about 1550. So 1,500 years after we had already considered the Old Testament, they were added. And when you read them, they don't follow the same standards. 
They don't have the same trustworthiness. They don't carry the same message. And they were probably added from our perspective by these two churches to try to justify certain doctrines they had. Now, if you talk to a Catholic apologist or an Eastern Orthodox apologist, and there are there, they're going to give you different reasons that they added these books in 1550. But I don't think there's any reason why we should say we should believe these books that were added 1500 years after the birth of the church. So for the first 1500 years, the church didn't have those books. And then all of a the sudden they're added in. Now let's go to the New Testament. Uh, Dan Brown in his movie, The Da Vinci Code, makes it sound like there were other gospels that were out there and that the council in 326 determined what books were going to be in the Bible. But that's just not true. No one determined what the canon of scripture was going to be. The early church connected scripture to the apostles. They were looking for the apostles who lived and walked with Jesus to give their accounts of living and walking with Jesus. And so we have the book of John written by the apostle John. We have the book of Matthew written by the apostle Matthew. We have the book of Luke that got his information from Paul and from other people that he met with when he went to Jerusalem, but he's connected to the apostle Paul. And you have the book of Mark. John Mark got his information from Peter. And so they were connected to the apostles. And so the church across the board accepted these four gospels as being God's word because the apostles were given and entrusted these accounts. And so they received them. Other gospels that came in that weren't connected to these apostles or that were obvious forgeries or pseudofigras, which would be pseudo, right, fakes, they were rejected immediately. So, so when you look at, and if they were 150, 200 years later, like, or like um, 150 in this late, late second century, first century being zero to 99, second century being um, 100 to 200. If they were late, middle to late second century, they were rejected immediately because they weren't around and hadn't been accepted by the church. They kind of felt the same way we feel about the Apocrypha. Why should we receive it after 1500 years? They had had the four gospels around already for a, a while and and some believe well we know that paul wrote the book of first corinthians around 55 and we know that that's a book that scholars it's only a couple of paul's books are in question now out of the 13 that he wrote and so and and he quotes luke in 55 so that's only 20 25 years after the resurrection of jesus and you've got Paul quoting the book of Luke. So that'll give you the early date for these gospels. And then the letters that came from them, they were still connecting to the apostles. Think about the letters that were written. Most of them by Paul, by James, the pastor of Jerusalem, by, by Jude, the brother of, of Jesus, by John, by Peter, uh, the book of Revelation by John, so these were all connected to the apostles. Uh, it's interesting, the ones that are questioned, have been questioned in the earlier church was Hebrews, because we don't know who that author is, so it wasn't connected to the apostles. Uh, the book of Jude, because that's the brother of Jesus, although the book of James was received, being the brother of Jesus and the pastor of Jerusalem, it was received as being scripture. Um, this is one of the reasons that Martin Luther didn't think James should be in the Bible because James wasn't an apostle. 
So the early church were looking for writings from the apostles. And we see this list. It's not that there wasn't any question about which one should be accepted or rejected, but we see this list forming the core of the New Testament very, very early in the first in the second century, very, very early in the second century. And then we see it getting even stronger. And then we see the list codified, people starting to write down the list. And then we see a council determined that this list has been accepted. Now, not only were they looking for things that were connected to the apostles, but they were looking for something that was included the right and true gospel. So if a book came along and it was said that it was by one of the apostles, but it taught a different gospel, then they didn't accept it. And Paul said this in the book of Galatians. If anybody comes to you, we are anybody else. An angel comes to you with a different gospel, let them be accursed. And so they were rejected, not because they were, there were two different lines of Christianity, as Bart Ehrman will say, or different lines of Christianity. And it's not because there weren't other books written in those days, or even people pretending to write, to write the Bible. It's that when you look at the books and the copies that we have that survive of all of the books that were available in their day, they don't hold to the criteria of coming from the apostles, being saying the same things that at least fit with the rest of the, the passage, with the rest of the books that were written in the New Testament and universally accepted, not just in, in um, Alexandria, Egypt, but also over in Europe, that the church everywhere that it was, that it, it universally accepted them. And so they, we came up with the 27 books of the New Testament that we have today. And there's still some debate that goes on. Certain people believing that second and, and third John, that the book of Jude should not be in there. Sometimes um, Hebrews still coming into question because we don't know who the author is. Uh, Nevertheless, we have great confidence that the books that were chosen are the books that God wanted to be in the Bible. And it wasn't because any group got together and rejected some. When you read the Gnostic Gospels, the Gospel of Peter or the Gospel of Thomas, immediately you see that it isn't connected to anything that the other Gospels were. It's the Gospel of Thomas is a collection of sayings. It's not the Gospel of Jesus Christ. It's not one of the Gospels. And um, so hopefully that will help. Um, and this is really important to understand because somehow we get the idea that it was willy-nilly and that they were just grabbing whatever books they wanted to. But when you understand they believe the apostles were given the right to, to doctrine. And remember, they, they taught the apostles doctrine, right? The book of Acts says that. And that they had the right for doctrine then it makes sense that the writings that came from them were accepted by the early church and were accepted into doctrine. It wasn't that anybody went to choose which book should be in the canon, but they had the characteristics of what canon was, and so they were received by the church. All right, so thank you for joining me. I appreciate, and I really do appreciate that question. And if you have any follow-ups to that particular question, I'd love to hear it. If you have any more questions about the canon of scripture, uh, we can be really confident today that what we have, because of textual criticism, which is a whole science, they're able to look at manuscripts and come up with the passages that we have today and be fairly confident that they are close, very close uh, to the autographed copies that we find uh, within, the, within the Bible. All right, so I'm just getting things pulled up here and ready to go. Uh, shocking, 
I had a little bit of uh, technical difficulty, and uh, so I was able to work that out right before we came on. Thank you, Tyler, for helping me with that. I really appreciate it. I finally called him out of desperation, and then we got it up and going. So I appreciate that. Good to see you here. Keith uh, Daru, good to have you here. Our first question today comes from Albert. Albert beats out, did Albert beat out Jari and? Um, uh, who is our, who's guys, who's, who else is always first on here? Um, anyway, yep, Jari, um, Albert beat him out. So Albert says, hello, pastor. Hi, Albert, good to see you. Uh, Jesus entrusted the care of his mother to the apostle John, rather than one of his brothers. Do you believe this was because they had not yet come to believe in him? Thank you, pastor. Um, yeah, thank you, Albert, I appreciate that. I, I think that's part of it. Uh, he's on the cross and there's John. John has followed him to the cross. His mother has followed him to the cross. All the other disciples have fled. And so from just a practical point, you wouldn't, tell John, I'm going to give the care of my mom to Peter. Would you tell him there's your faithful certain, your, your faithful apostle who's right there at the cross. And so he gives it to him. Now at this point, James and Jude, as far as we know, still didn't believe in Jesus. They thought he was out of his mind. You remember that they had come, his brother, James, Jude, Simon, and Joseph, the Bible tells us were the name of his four half brothers uh, that were between Mary and Joseph. And they came because they thought that Jesus was out of his mind. And so they wanted to, they wanted to, to take him home. And so at this point, they may have still thought that. And so Jesus entrusted the care to John, but he wanted to take care of his mom. And this shows some responsibility for us of having the responsibility of taking care of our own parents as they age, as they get older, that the responsibility doesn't go away, that Jesus, our savior gave us the example of taking care of his mother when he was going to die, when he was going to go and put it into the hands of John and that we have that responsibility. That might be a little convicting to some of us, um, but I think it's very important for us. Even if our culture doesn't put that responsibility on us, I think that we see that there with Jesus who took care of his mother uh, there at the cross. And I think those, those two things come into play. Yeah, I think that his brothers not being believers yet would come into play, but also the fact that John was there the brothers weren't there and the disciples weren't there. Remember the brothers knew Jesus as well. Their mom's there. I don't know if they had heard Jesus was gonna be crucified or not, but they're not there nevertheless. All right, so um, thank you very much, Albert, for your question. We have a question from Fact Check These Hands. Uh, Fact Check These Hands says, I've been reading Proverbs, lots of warnings there about adultery. Yeah, especially a couple of passages that really key into it. I've personally known several who committed this act were greatly blessed for decades after. I thought adultery ruined lives. All right, so fact check these hands. Um, don't mistake God's silence for his approval or even them being blessed for a while for his approval. Think about how God allowed someone like Hitler to go on and live and even to have success. In the book of Revelation, you have the letter to the church of Thyatira. And he talks about them having Jezebel there in their midst who had com commanded them to commit sex, who had um, lured them to commit sexual immorality. I can't remember the exact words. 
And God says, I gave her time to repent. And if she does not, I will throw her and her children into the bed of death. So God is going to punish, but God gives people room to repent. He gives them time to repent. So don't think that when someone does something that's really wrong and then doesn't repent from it, don't think that judgment isn't on its way because judgment is. And that's a warning to everyone who is watching this, that if somehow you are, you think I'm, I'm getting away with this, you're not. The goodness of God brings about repentance and God gives people time and room to repent. And so repent, turn from it, come back to Christ, start to live wholeheartedly for him. Now also fact check these hands. We have people that have committed adultery and then come to Christ. And that's a sin like any other sin that could be forgiven. It doesn't mean that there might not be earthly consequences because just because our sins forgiven by God doesn't mean all earthly consequences are taken away. Somebody in jail for murder repents and becomes a Christian, their murder is forgiven, but they're still in jail. The consequences of their sin, their sin is still there. So, um, uh, yeah, no, um, so people can be forgiven. Also think about David. David had 14 wives. Kings were supposed to multiply wives. God said for this reason, in, early in Genesis, for this reason, a father and a mother shall leave, uh, uh, they, they shall leave their father and mother and the two shall, a man and a woman shall leave their father and mother and the two shall cleave together and become one flesh. So David violated that and had multiple wives but also had multiple problems because of it. Jacob had multiple wives and had multiple problems because of it. We, we see this is the case. Uh, uh, Abraham had two wives and had multiple problems because of it. And so don't think that God is somehow going to judge people immediately for what they do. Even those in the world that are going to have judgment, God allows them to live and he causes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. So it's a, it's a, it's a lot like thinking like Jacob's, uh, like Job's friends. They say, come on, Job, God doesn't just do this to people. We know you did something bad. And Job's like, I didn't do anything bad. And we're told in the beginning of the book that Job was a righteous man. So he was a good man. And we know that's by human standards because no one's good but God. But the Bible does declare certain men to be good. That would be good by human standards, not by not compared to God, not to get into heaven, but by human standards. And so his friends made the mistake of thinking you do bad, bad things happen to you. You do good, bad things don't happen to you. And that's kind of the thinking that you're you're going down. Fact check these hands. You are uh, you're, you're thinking, well, these guys did bad. Why are they still being blessed? Well, judgment's coming and they need to repent, all right? And you're, you're in that, um, I thought adultery ruins life. Yes, adultery ruins lives. It destroys marriages, it, it destroys people's homes, but our God is in the, our God's in the business of putting lives back together. And he can even take a life that has been destroyed by something like adultery, and God can do some wondrous things through it. A biblical example, David with Bathsheba. We don't know whether Bathsheba, whether this was, I'm gonna use a, a term, okay? <laughs> Hide your children. I'm gonna use a term that's, a, that's a, a, a modern day term, okay? 
David power raped Bathsheba, meaning he was in a position of power. She had no power. She was summoned and he had sex with her. She might have willingly done it, but what was she going to do? Tell the king no? It's a pretty horrible act. And then to have her husband killed, even worse act, murder and adultery. Now, Bathsheba and David stay married. They lose the child from the affair. But God eventually blesses that marriage by Solomon coming from Bathsheba. Bathsheba is the mother of the next king. And if I were God, I wouldn't have done that because I would be afraid that people would look and go, well, that was an adulterous, uh, the, the foundations of that marriage was adultery. And how could God use that? But God chose to use it to show any of you that may have a marriage that's built on a bad foundation that God can redeem even that and bring blessings even into that. That's not encouraging sinful behavior by any means, but it's showing that God can redeem sinful behavior and which one of us can stand and say, well, which one of us can throw stones, right? We all have sin in our lives and we all would not be able to throw stones because of that sin. So um, if that doesn't answer your question, uh, fact check these hands, I spent a long time on it. I'm sorry. No, you can ask a follow-up question, all right? So we have a question from Kimberly. Kimberly, good to see you. Kimberly says, is it true the King James was written um, when they broke off from the Catholic Church? The English king wanted the ability to divorce his wife. Hmm. Well, I'm going to have to plead ignorance. I know the King James Bible was written in 1611. The Reformation was around then. I don't remember the dates of the Reformation, Martin Luther especially, off the top of my mind. Um, it may very well have been, but if he wanted the ability to be able to divorce his wife, then what passage in the Bible in the King James Bible gave him the ability to divorce her. I'm sure if this is a controversy, and I'm, there's no reason for me to think it's not, Kimberly, then there's something that they're looking at the way something is worded. Uh, the, um, the King James Bible was taken from a certain set of manuscripts that the New King James Bible was eventually taken from. And I consider the New King James Bible to be one of the better Bibles that, that's out there. I like it better than the NIV and the ESV. I like the NASB the best for, for studying. Um, I like some other Bibles better for just reading. But if I, if I was starting to teach today, remember, I've been doing this for 37 years. So I've been teaching for a long time. And I've been teaching out of the New King James Bible since the day we started in 1985. And um, I'm not going to change now. <laughs> I'd be quoting everything wrong. I'd be reading everything wrong. Um, and it's a good, it's a good, it's a good translation. But the NASB is probably better. And um, if you know of the passage that you that the that King James may have had altered to be able to divorce his wife, I would be interested in that. But I can't think of any. Jesus said, if you divorce your wife, except for sexual immorality, this is in the King James, New King James Bible, uh, the, and she marries another, she's committing adultery. That means that if he 
divorced his wife and marries another, he's committed adultery, if it's, unless it's for sexual immorality. Sexual immorality is the only case for divorce. There could be separation, but that would be for reconciliation or to remain single. And a lot of people can't take this and they even manipulate God. They, they believe that I've been abandoned so I can, I can remarry. I, you know, they, they come up with their own reasons, but we wanna be biblical. Even if it means that I've gotta live my life, the rest of my life in a way that I don't want to, I'm gonna live for God. It's you or God. And I see people choosing themselves a lot over God uh, when it comes to the idea of divorce. Uh, you can give me a follow-up question if I went the wrong direction on that. All right, Kimberly, I appreciate that. We have a question from Jari. Jari, good to see you. Jari says, um, regarding Nehemiah 3.3, why are the gates called that question, the fish gate, the dung gate, etc.? Is there significance? Also, why is death cast in the lake of fire death the last enemy is it an angel i don't think um no i don't think death is an angel i don't think the death angel in exodus is the same as death being thrown to the lake of fire that's that death is done once death is thrown to the lake of fire it's done there's no more death no one else is going to die it's finished and nehemiah 3 3 talking about the different gates that are there um i can tell you what i know about the gates been to Jerusalem a lot of times, and uh, we're going again here in April. And um, the gates got their names like that based upon what was going on. So the Dungate, you can imagine why it would get its name, the Dungate, right? Um, the Fish Gate, I'm not sure why it got their names. Um, I can't recall it off of the top of my head why they had those particular names. Um, so the fish gate, they laid, um, these beams hung its doors and bolts and necks. And yeah, there's the Zion gate that's there. All of them have a reason for their names. And I'm going to tell you who would be able to answer your question. And that's any guide from Israel. Those guys are trained on all of that kind of stuff. And, um, I will, if I can remember, I will ask our guide when we're in Israel in late March, early April, uh, this year, and we're walking around Jerusalem how the different gates got their names, especially the ones that were mentioned there in Nehemiah. All right, <clears throat> thank you very much, uh, Jari. I appreciate that. Yeah, it's uh, good to see you guys. Uh, I'm kind of noticing that we only have YouTube. So um, there might be something going on with Facebook. Uh, if you wanna go ahead and check that uh, Keith, that would be great. Just double check and see whether or not we're up on Facebook now. It only looks like YouTube is working. <clears throat> Maybe we can uh, can get that figured out. There's been a few problems that have popped up. Um, all right. So let's see. Uh, Jari's question. Then we have a follow-up by Fact Check These Hands. Uh, uh, she says, uh, uh, Fact Check These Hands says, it might be a he. I'm not sure if you're he or she. Uh, Fact Check These Hands says, these people gained a lot of wealth, status, power, grew successful businesses, had happy marriages, successful children after the adultery. I'm just confused, considering the stark warnings. Uh, it's not done yet. We aren't finished. How much time is God going to give someone to repent? And if it's the goodness of God that leads to repentance, and God has causes the rain to fall on the rich and the poor, which means he blesses both of them, 
and and our excuse me the the evil and the the, the good and the evil the righteous and the and, and the wicked then how much time before god is god going to give them and is god going to bless them before he ends up judging them maybe it won't be here maybe it will be in eternity and and even though anecdotal evidence or anecdotal is that right anecdote anecdotal evidence is when you see something in your life and you think that's the way it is everywhere so it's not good evidence so if you see someone being blessed who committed adultery it doesn't mean that there aren't a thousand more that are having their lives destroyed because of adultery it's just what you're seeing we we tend to look at lives lives through our own lenses and it's not good to say this is what i see and that's the way it must should be you don't see everything that happens out there or the destruction that comes from it from the adultery and um the stark warnings are there for a reason and god will bring and the proverbs are how to live a life that is blessed and with wisdom and god does warn against it all right so thank you for that follow-up i appreciate that but um uh, don't be confused god gives time for people to repent god's time is not our time we think well they've had years decades that's nothing to god to god a day is like a thousand years a thousand years is like a day so don't be confused it's the goodness of god that brings about repentance and god gives people time to repent and it may be a long time and don't as i said before don't confuse the silence of god so if god is silent now don't confuse that with his approval and then also was that person a christian all right, uh, we have a follow-up again by Jari. Jari says, uh, why isn't there a Middle Testament? Why was God silent during the period between um, Malachi and Matthew? Is there is there significance in this? Thanks. Um, thanks, Jari, I do appreciate that. So this is a follow-up on our first question, which was how we got our canon and why we don't accept the books that are added, the Apocrypha books that are added. And no, the silent years, I think, are very distinct. It's like the Old Testament canon was finished. And the very last word in the Old Testament, in fact, let me get there, I wanna read this to you. I wanna read you the very last statement in the Old Testament. All right, this is, um, this is Malachi 4.6. I'm gonna put it up on the screen here. Hopefully it's working. I had a little bit of difficulty. There it is, all right. So this is the last verse. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children, the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. Bible says everyone who hangs on a tree is cursed. And so you have 400 years of silence, then the birth of the Messiah, and then the scriptures firing back up again, and then the gospels and the deliverance. And as Adam and Eve stood before a tree and took the fruit, Jesus hung on a tree, becoming a curse for us so that we could be set free. So yes, there is significance in that silence, that no scripture was written in those 400 years um, as God took a pause. This is, this is one of my points too. It took 400 years for God to pause before bringing the Messiah. When he, he moved out of that Old Testament, um, out of that Old Testament issue. All right, so um, hopefully that is helpful, Jari. All right, so thank you very much. I appreciate it. 
I do see something now, I think from Facebook. So the first one I see, aha. Uh -huh. So maybe something happened on Facebook and we got Facebook up and going. I at least see Keith welcoming those who are on Facebook. Did we get something worked out? Keith, we'll see. We'll see what's going on here. Um, looks like the majority of you still here are from YouTube. So good to have you YouTubies on. Um, the e, uh, um, Empress Kimberly says, uh, there is a new Bible called the ECO Bible put together by interfaith leaders uh, to protect the earth. Very scary, scares me, okay? Um, but I can't comment on it because I don't know it, but I can tell you I'm frightened by just the idea or the thought that they have come up with a Bible like that. Um, very, very scary, all right? Let's see. I'm on Sinai to make um, a new Ten Commandments. So uh, keeping it real says, a bunch of religious leaders are meeting on Mount Sinai to make a new Ten Commandments on Sunday, and they expect all nations to follow it or else. Huh. Well, that's interesting. I don't think there's anything wrong with the Old Commandments, although we fulfill the law and the prophets by love. So when I say I don't follow the Ten Commandments, sometimes people are shocked by that. But I follow the law of love. And if I follow the law of love, then I'm going to keep the commandments. But we are not under the ceremonial, the um, dietary, the sabbatical aspects of the Old Testament. We're not under them. Otherwise, <clears throat> we as Christians would be living a lot different uh, than what we're living, living today. Um, so Rod asks a question. Um, Rod Sanchez, good to see you. Um, when are you going to write a Bible commentary? I'm not sure that I am, Rod. I'll I'll tell you, I've um, over the years I've had a couple of ideas for books and commentaries. When you when you go line by line, verse by verse through the Bible, all of your stuff is there. So we could take all of the latest stuff we've got, transcript it into, you know, into to typed out form and then have editors come in and edit them, re going from being spoken to being written. And then I could come back in and I could add to it, kind of making my way through and add to it. And we could produce a commentary. Do we need to have that? Do we need another commentary? Do I bring up significant differences from other commentaries that are already out there? These are questions that go through my mind when I think about it. Um, what was it? Um, Solomon said there is no end to the writing of books. That was 1,900 years before the time of Christ, 3,000 years ago. And today there is no end to the writing of books. Um, you can, as a pastor, you can very easily write a book. You pick out your topic. You put it into 12 distinct sermons. So you kind of pick out 12, 10 or 12 distinct sermons. Then you preach those sermons. And then you use your outline, the, the, the message that's been printed out from that, and you combine them together to make your chapters. And then you put out your book. And there are a lot of pastors that do that. And I'm not saying it's wrong to do that. If they really have something they really believe that they want to say, then they can do that. You can print it yourself. You can use, um, there are, are places that will print your books for you. And I have been offered to do to do a book and um, just haven't followed through with it 
because I wonder, is this something God wants me to do? When you say yes to something like that, you say no to something else. And uh, so to answer your question, maybe, Rod, if I feel like what I'm adding is significant and different, significantly different enough to be able to warrant writing a commentary. But I wonder, will anybody be, re if the Lord tarries and in 30 years, I'm no longer ministering, which will most certainly be the case. I will not be preaching still in 30 years. Will people be buying my commentaries? Is it like, you know, J. Vernon McKee's commentaries or Matthew Henry's commentary where someone's like, boy, I got to get this one and read it. So I would have to really hear from God and really be something I feel like God's telling me needs to be done. And um, if you ever hear that I am writing a book, then you'll know it's because I really believe it's something that needs to be said. All right. And um, the closest I've ever come and may do this yet is to um, write a book on suffering because I've had my fair share of suffering. And um, the Bible talks about not faltering under under suffering. All right. Um, so I see a question from Jari on a future Q&A. Let's just read the question. We want to sort of go over it. Um, Follow-up Q&A. Um, why are there so many denominations? Um, ND believes. I don't know what ND is. ND. I don't know what ND is. ND believes in the church, Catholic, Protestant, pre-trib, mid-trib, etc. Uh, did God mean for the church to be divided? Thanks. No, I think... I think a lot of divisions are carnal. Uh, when the church at Corinth were going, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Paul, I'm of Christ, Paul rebukes them and calls them carnal for it. So when we get caught up in, I'm Calvary Chapel, I'm Assembly of God, I'm Lutheran, I'm Methodist, I'm um, uh, Foursquare, which is a church I used to be a, a part of, as well as Assembly of God, as well as Calvary Chapel, uh, so I'm just kind of thinking of churches I've been involved in. I was never a Lutheran, I was a Methodist though. Um, then that's carnal. If I determine what I believe based on being a Calvary Chapel pastor, then that's carnal. I'm, I'm not seeking God by the spirit. I wanna know what God's word says. And if it goes against what Calvary Chapel believes, then I want to be able to say it. And, I, and I'm from the pastors that I know, I'm going to say that I feel that that is the same thing that most of these Calvary Chapel pastors feel. They want to be able to just speak about what they find in the scriptures that are the truth. And the same would be true about any other denomination, that they're not just saying things because that's what their denomination says, but because, or, or their affiliation of churches, like we're an affiliation, um, the, this, um, the Southern Baptist Convention is an affiliation of churches, they're not a denomination as such. Um, but um, why are there so many different denominations? Because, well, I think, first of all, the universal church, the Catholic church, is a large group of people that have put their trust in what somebody, one person says. They're going to follow what one person says, and so they are more unified. There are different splits between Catholic churches, but they're much, much less than in Protestantism. Once Protestantism hit, there was division after division after division because people started realizing, I can study the word of God for myself. And so the church over the years has, has been very 
the church in church history very careful to put down what makes someone a genuine Christian and what makes someone aberrant, believing aberrant teachings that are not genuine Christian beliefs. And there's a list of them. And once some person starts to believe something different about them, then we put them outside of the Christian camp. These are the creeds that um, we believe in that we stick to. And I think we would all stick to. Um, but mid-trib, post-trib, hey, those are just, those, those don't, in the big scheme of things, those don't matter. Why don't they matter? Because one of them's true and it'll happen. And the rest of them will go along with it. The, um, th there are a lot of things that I think are, are damaging to the church that I don't think should be taught. But hey, that's what, there's false teachings out there. Satan's out there. Satan's trying to move and to get things going. And some people just want to come up with their own idea. And I always warn people, if you're the only one that ever thought about it, there's probably a reason. Because there have been a lot of Bible thinkers over the years, a lot, and a lot of really smart Bible thinkers over the years. And if what you've come up with hasn't been come up with before, then, well, you know, like uh, Greg Laurie says, if it's true, it's not new. If it's new, it's not true. All right. Um, All right, so just kind of looking at some of the the uh, comments that we have here. And by the way, I really appreciate you guys keeping the comments more on point, talking about the questions that have been asked. Um, I just want to encourage you along those lines again uh, that this is a community that we're putting together here. And it's not just me answering questions. I'm answering questions to the best of my ability, to the best of my memory. And it doesn't mean I'm not going to forget things or there might not even be a better point. And if you say, I think this, or I, 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 I look at this passage being this way to that, I think that's great. I think that we can expand and really explore more of what the word of God says by really staying on point. And I appreciate you guys doing that. You guys have done a, a much better job uh, since I brought that up. All right. So it looks like we just had a hello from Facebook and nobody else. So we got, and we got a good number of people that are on the stream. So from um, from YouTube, good to see you guys. We have a question from Daru. Daru says, question, hello, pastor. Hope you're well. Thank you. Uh, my wife keeps asking me why God has many names. <clears throat> Could you please explain to her? Much appreciated. Yes, Daru. I don't know if your wife is there or not, um, but she could watch this later on. Uh, God is transcendent. That's a word that we use to say that God's beyond our understanding. We cannot comprehend him. And that makes sense. He created us. And if he created us and he created us outside of time, space and matter, then we're not going to understand God. And so the Bible gives us a lot of different names of God to help us understand who he is. God, our provider, the God who hears, um, <clears throat> the I am, the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, and so on and so forth, uh, that you have so many names for God that are revealed. And these names are descriptive. They've got a reason. They've got a purpose for having that name. It's not just a name that he has, even the Tetragrammaton, which is I am, or that I exist, the one who has always existed. The, he's always existed where he's telling us something about himself. And that's what all of the names of God do is tell us something about who he is. 
And so the more we read it, or the more we look at a list of God's name names, and what a great thing to do, by the way, is to go on the internet and just type in a list of God's names found in the Bible <clears throat> and just go down the list. When I was a teenager in my room, I used to have a poster that had a black background, all kinds of different colors that had the names of God. I don't know if it was every name of God that was listed. This is in the 70s when posters were hit, by the way. And I don't remember if this is a black light poster or not, but I did have a black light with some black light posters. And uh, the, uh, but had all the different names of God on them. And when you go down that list, Daru's wife, <clears throat> you find that there's so many amazing things about our God that we serve. When you, when you look at that list of his names. And I'm only sorry that I can't recall more of them off the top of my head because they are <clears throat> so absolutely amazing. And they really are. So I really appreciate the question from your wife, Daru. I, I would love to have you, um, you know, follow up. And I see there is already a follow up. She asked also, why do we have to call God now Jesus Christ? Well, remember, we talked to the Father. We have God, one in essence, three in persons. One of those persons is the Father. One of those persons is the Son. And one of those persons is the Holy Spirit. The Son is Jesus. That's the anglicized or the Latinized name of Joshua into Jesus. It became Greek uh, Eosis, if I said that correctly, probably butchered it. But then eventually Jesus and Christ is the word for Messiah. Christ is the Greek word for the Hebrew word Messiah, Mashiach. And so Jesus Christ is Joshua, which means salvation, Messiah. Salvation Messiah is the name of Jesus. And so Jesus is clearly God. He said to Caiaphas, I am the son of God. Caiaphas said, I adjure you before in the name of the living God. Are you the son of God? Jesus said, I am. And in Hebrews chapter one, God says to his son, he said, or it says of Jesus, to his son, he said, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. God calls the son God in Hebrews chapter one. And so Jesus Christ is God. And, and God went on a saving mission to save us. That's the Messiah, the promise of the one who would bless all nations, the anointed one who would bless all nations. And he came on this mission to save. And so now we call him salvation Messiah or Jesus Christ, or if you were speaking Hebrew, Joshua Mashiach, that's the name. So it's not his first and last name, it's what he came to do, and he will forever bear that name of being the Messiah. All right, just looking at a, uh, I, I downloaded a new version um, onto my, my computer, <clears throat> a new, uh, a version of the software that runs the computer. And now it wants to connect every phone in my house as a camera. And that may one day be useful for this. I could start picking my phone up and start just kind of showing you guys what's going on here in the, in the room. But right now it's just annoying. And all of my, all of my devices start dinging and it starts show, flashing things up on the screen. So I'm just telling you about my world right now. All right. Uh, some of the things that are asked here. Um, Cara has a question. We're nearing very near the end of this, so I might not give this uh, the amount of time it's due, Kara. Um, but <clears throat> Kara says, is suicide a sin? 
Yes. You are taking the life of someone made in the image of God. Suicide is a sin. Now, can a Christian be so distraught and so thinking wrong that they would take their own lives and still make it into heaven? Well, God ultimately is the one who gets to decide that, right? So I, I wouldn't want to roll the dice, but I wouldn't want to, I, I would rather live wholeheartedly for him. And Carr, I don't know if this is for you, if you're thinking of suicide at all, but the real answer, if you are thinking of, of taking your life is to give your life wholeheartedly over to Christ and begin to live for him. Life here isn't about how I feel or being comfortable or if I'm successful or not. Life here is about living for Jesus Christ. That's why we've been given this life to live for him. And if you know someone who's committed suicide, I'm sorry for that. I would not put them in hell. I also would not put them in heaven. You say, well, what if they were a Christian? They, they were a known Christian. Um, Jesus is going to say to some away from me, I never knew you. Some don't really have a relationship with him. And I've done funerals of Christians who have committed suicide. And um, I've said those exact same things at those funerals. So I'm, I'm not sure exactly what's going on. Kara, uh, I wish I had more information from you on that. And maybe you can share more and we can talk more in detail about it. All right. So um, we have a question here from Sarah. Sarah, we got a minute left. I don't know if that's going to be enough here. Uh, we got another uh, question from Gloria. <clears throat> Looks like some other stuff coming in. I'll take a look at these. Um, Keith is going to send me these, uh, this log. I'll take a look at them and see if I want to start our next Q&A, which Lord willing will be Wednesday night. Uh, but let's go ahead and take a look at this, Susan. We'll wrap things up. Um, any thoughts on November 13th meeting on Mount Sinai, the new Ten Commandments? Thank you, Susan. I appreciate that. Um, no, I haven't heard about it. I think it's, I don't know, foolish thing to do. I, I don't know any details, so I can't really speak intelligently about it. So all I can say is I'll stick with the, with the old commandments as far as a moral guide, and I'll speak with the new commandment Jesus gave us, that we love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength and love one another as ourselves. Those are the two commandments Jesus gave us by which everything is right. And we fulfill all of the law and the prophets, everything. So I don't need anybody's new commandments on top of Mount Sinai. All right, uh, now a couple of things. Again, good to have you here. If you're visiting for the first time, great to have you. Uh, we have a service in about an hour. We are in the book of Luke, we're in chapter 23. We see Jesus before Pontius Pilate. And just like last week, we saw that in the Jewish trial, there was a revelation of his divinity. In the Roman trial, there is a revelation of his kingship. He is a potentate. He is the, the only sovereign. Every other sovereign will answer to him. And there's a revelation of that here in the Roman trial. We also wanna take a look at Pilate tonight. We wanna ask the question, does the Bible paint the same picture? And the Bible's historical books, remember, but does it paint the same picture as Philo and Josephus and other ancient historians who wrote about Pilate? Because there's this accusation out there that the Pilate of the Bible is different than the, the Pilate of other historians, that the Bible paints, uh, paints him as, as vacillating and weak and not really, you know, not wanting to kill Jesus when the Pilate that you find in history didn't have any qualms about killing people. 
and really would have been anti-Semitic. The Romans were anti-Semitic. But I want to show today by looking at those accounts, those actual accounts, and to ask the question, does the Bible talk about Pilate the same way other historians do? All right. So that'll be in about an hour. We'll have the service. We'll start in about an hour. You know what? I have eight minutes left. Woo. Okay. I just realized I was telling time wrong. How about that? I can't tell time. Uh, so I've got another eight minutes. So I'll continue on here. Um, but we have that service. Also, this coming up Wednesday night, we're going to continue on in our study in the book of Revelation. We have the, the seventh, the final letter to Laodicea, the lukewarm church. Before we get into the heavenly visions of chapters four and five, before we get into the tribulation period in chapter six. I'm really looking forward to getting into this point of the book of Revelation with you. Uh, you can join us on Wednesday nights for that. Um, on, on Saturday and Sunday, we are in the book of Luke. All right. So I'm going to go ahead and take Gloria's question. So any thoughts on the November, November meeting? Yeah, we need the two commandments Jesus gave us, the two greatest commandments, and we fulfill all the law and the prophets according to Romans and Galatians, by the way. Not just one book in the Bible tells us that we fulfill all the commandments by love, but there's two places. So we have a question from Gloria. Gloria, good to see you. Gloria says, God bless. Uh, should we take into consideration the Council of Rome? Does this canon list make the Septuagint more reliable than the uh, Masoretic Catholic Bible more reliable then? All right, so I'm which councils are which I get confused. So is the Council of Rome the one that was in 1550-ish, 1543 or whatever it was? And if that's the council, then it's the one that made the list um, in the, that added Bible to the Old Testament. If it's not, it's another one. Does the canon list make the Septuagint more reliable than the Masoretic Catholic Bible? The Septuagint is the Greek copy of the Old Testament that was finished 165 years before the time of Christ. And a lot of the New Testament actually quotes the Septuagint rather than the Hebrew Bible, which is really interesting when you think about it. And then you have the Vulgate, which is the Latin copy of the Old Testament. Um, I don't know much about the, the um, if I'm saying that right, Masoretic Catholic Bible. I think we want to accept, because it was 1,500 years later, that the, the Catholic Church and the Orthodox Church added in other books to the Old Testament. And the Septuagint obviously is the 39 Old Testament books that we had 165 years before the time of Jesus. It, the, the 39 books were the books that were accepted by Jews during the days of Jesus, even though you had these different groups that were there. So I don't think that we need to 1,500 years later add anything to it. We accept those Old Testament books based on what they were. And sorry, I don't, oops, sorry, I don't remember uh, Gloria the Council of Rome or um, the Masoretic Catholic Bible. All right, sorry that I'm not able to help you with that particularly, but I do believe that we have in the 39 books of the Old Testament that are accepted by almost all Christians, um, I think that we have the, the ones that should be accepted. And they're the same ones that were accepted by Catholics in 1400, or excuse me, 1600. Yeah, 1600 BC as opposed to 1400 BC. All right. Um, yeah, so Kevin um, Kevin says 120 years for repentance while Noah built the ark. 
Um, yeah, that's very patient, right? <clears throat> Going back to the idea of God not judging someone immediately when they commit adultery. All right, um, Heaven Lee, I love your uh, title there, has a question. Heaven Lee says, where do you think we are on the prophetic timeline in Revelation? We are before the prophetic timeline of Revelation even begins. We know we're not in the tribulation period. The, um, the early church in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 thought they were in the tribulation period, but they, but they weren't. I'm going to go ahead and bring this up on the screen for you, as long as everything's working well now. This is 2 um, Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 1. Now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, we ask you. So the gathering together to him is the rapture of the church. And the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ is after the tribulation period. It says not to be shaken in word, and let's see, not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled either by spirit or by word or by letter as if from us, as though the day of Christ had come. The day of Christ is a reference to the tribulation period. They had gotten letters that they were in the tribulation period. And so he wants to assure them they are not. He says, let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first. So the falling away then is either the apostasy, meaning believers leaving, which we may be seeing today in the progressive church, in people deconstructing their Christian faith, that may be the falling away. Or the rapture of the church may be the falling away. And that's got to come first. And the man of sin is revealed. Now, it doesn't say the man of sin is revealed first. And when you read this in different, sometimes when you really want to understand what something's saying, because people will read this and go, no, it says the man of sin needs to be revealed first. No, it doesn't. Read it in other, uh, just go through the list, go, go online, open up Blue Letter Bible, uh, type in this passage, and look at it in all of the different um, Bibles that have had scholars who have, have gone over these words to figure out what's said. The only thing that has to happen first in 2 Thessalonians is the falling away. Then the man of sin would be revealed. In other words, if we were in the tribulation period, the Antichrist would be revealed. And so for someone who's here who believes that we are in the tribulation period, then who's the Antichrist? Because if that's the case, then he would have to be revealed. The Antichrist himself would have to be revealed if that was the case. All right, so thank you very much. I uh, really appreciate your question. And let's get back over here. Um, hopefully that's helpful. Um, where are we in the prophetic timeline? Not of Revelation, but just in the prophetic timeline. Um, and, and I guess, I, you know what? I guess I could answer your question in a different way now I think about it. Where are we in the prophetic timeline of Revelation? We're in the church age, chapters two and three. That's where we are. And I think everything has been done that needs to be done for Jesus to return. And I'll tell you my hope, Heavenly, is that God would tarry, that more people could be saved. That really is my hope. I mean, yeah, I want to be a part of the, the rapture. I, want to, I don't want to die. I want to be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. And what an incredible moment that would be to actually be caught up and to meet him in the air. I want to be a part of that. But I want more for people to come to Christ. And if that means that we wait longer, then let's wait longer. Let's pray for a big revival. And who knows, maybe God will give us more time. We get to the point where we can't imagine that God would 
could even wait any longer because of all of the things that are happening. But remember how intense things got during the time of Hitler or how intense things got um, in 1948 when Israel became a nation connected to certain uh, prophetic things that are going on that were out there, how, how absolutely intense they were. And so I don't know of anything that has to be done before Jesus returns. Maybe you could say the destruction of Jerusalem. Maybe you could say the destruction of Damascus or not destruction of Jerusalem, the Magog and Magog war. Maybe you could say the destruction of Damascus but we don't know whether those things happen during the tribulation period or before the tribulation period. It's just something that we don't know and that we don't understand. All right. So thank you. Heavenly, sorry about blowing off revelation so quickly there for the timeline. Uh, we are in revelation. We're just in the church age ch uh, chapters two and three. All right. So, um, Kevin has a question about divorce and remarriage. It's five o'clock right now. Bang. Do you know where your children are? Uh, that's 10 o'clock, I guess. Let me just look at this question here. I don't really have time to look too much into it, but this might not be a bad question to start off as our first one for Wednesday, Kevin. Kevin, good to see you, by the way. I think this is your first time here. Glad to have you as a part of what we are doing. I see that you're here from Facebook. So good to see you. I, I think that you're our only person, certainly with a question from Facebook, and I'm starting to see different people popping on here from questions. Where do you think we are? Yeah, that was from um, on Facebook as well. So somehow we got Facebook working at least somewhere. Um, so Kevin says, question, divorce and remarriage. What is the correct biblical way and, um, when not, um, and when not failed to re to, uh, on remarriage is blessing lost? All right. Divorce and remarriage. What is the correct biblical way? And when it's not filled, the correct biblical way isn't filled on remarriage is a blessing lost. All right, I think I got it, Kevin. So how is divorce and remarriage biblical? And when it's not done in the right way, is there a blessing that is lost from it? Okay, um, I'm not gonna have time to answer this. Uh, it's gonna take more. So this will be the question that we start with in our Wednesday Q&A. And sorry to do that to you, Kevin, but it's five o'clock and we are out of time. I've got um, a service in exactly an hour. I'll be teaching in about an hour and 20 minutes from now maybe an hour and 25 minutes from now, and I'll be looking at Pilate and uh, Jesus on trial before Pilate. I'm really looking forward to covering that. Love you guys. Uh, great questions. Uh, love the community that's being built here. Again, uh, I love that your guys' responses and interactions with one another are encouraging, and you can still have fun, um, but keeping it more on point, I really, really appreciate that. All right. Um, I see another question here. So we've got a few more questions on here. I'll take a look at them and uh, see if I can work them in. I also take these questions and I will put them in. I've got questions here that if we run out of questions, I can bring them in. I'll put them there as well and can revisit them. But it's good to see you guys um, and glad to have you guys for Facebook finally joining us. Hopefully we can get that worked out. Looks like there's been um, some kind of an update to one of the programs that we use to be able to go on different platforms at the same time. And um, so, we're, we're trying to figure that out. I'm sure we'll get it figured out. All right. So God bless you guys. Love you. Uh, stay close to Jesus. All right. Um, keep your eyes on him. Uh, delight in the Lord. He'll give you the desires of your heart. You delight in the world. You're going to have the corruption of the flesh. So do the spirit. You're going to reap life. So do the flesh. Reap corruption. Walk in the spirit. And you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh, the Bible says. 
Jesus said, abide in me and my words abide in you. You will have whatever you desire. Let those be very practical things, hopefully, that will help you delight in Christ and really be blessed from that, all right? So uh, again, God bless you guys. Stay close to Jesus. I'm out. We will talk to you guys on Wednesday night, and we'll see you in about an hour and 20 minutes. Join us online, Calvary Tucson with Robert Furrow. All right, God bless you guys.